Doritos made me an alcoholic. That's right, it's Frito-Lay's fault. My name is Matt Salis, and this is the Untoxicated Podcast. Thanks for listening. That's the topic for today. Uh, How I became an alcoholic, how did I know I was an alcoholic, and why do I so boldly call myself an alcoholic? So we'll get to the Doritos story eventually, how Doritos made me an alcoholic. But first, let's start at the beginning, and let's talk about how did I know I was an alcoholic. The mental gymnastics that are involved in the self-diagnosis of alcoholism in 100% of the hundreds, maybe by now thousands of cases that I'm aware of, is it's paralyzing. The mental gymnastics is just paralyzing. And what I mean by mental gymnastics is we sit there, especially when we are high-functioning alcoholics who are holding our lives mostly together. We have families that are intact. We haven't blown every penny we've ever made. We've got a house. We've got a job. Those of us in that category, the high-functioning alcoholic category, we spend a lot of time arguing with ourselves about whether or not an alcoholic because we say, you know, I, I'm not a, a bum who sleeps in the gutter and pees myself and I don't beat my wife and I, I haven't lost my job and my kids don't hate me, so I can't be an alcoholic. That's what an alcoholic is. And so the label, it's a big deal. How we handle, how we treat the label, the stigma that's associated with the label, it's a huge deal. It's not just an embarrassment for those of us that call ourselves an alcoholic because of the stigma that's associated. The stigma itself keeps people drinking. It, it keeps them in this endless cycle of debate. I can't be an alcoholic. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. You know, one of the things that I've always said is when I was drinking and drinking heavily, well, I don't drink in the morning, so I can't be an alcoholic. But then, you know, there were times when I did drink in the morning, but I could justify that away easily. I On Christmas morning, we would have mimosas. And I learned, one of the cool things about mimosas that I learned is champagne with orange juice is what a mimosa is, and most people mix it somewhere in the ratio of 50-50. But any amount of orange juice in a glass of champagne turns it just as orange as, as if it was all orange juice. So one of the things I learned on Christmas mornings when I would make my mimosas is I would make everyone else in the family, I'd make theirs 50-50, and mine would be 98% champagne with 2% orange juice, and it would look the same as everyone else's. I thought I was so slick. But so there's a case where I drank in the morning, even though, you know, as a high-functioning alcoholic, I never drank in the morning. Another one, I love this story. I, I got called into work really early on a Saturday morning once to fix a problem And I was actually only there for just a few minutes. Problem was solved, and I went home, and I wanted to go back to bed. It was still like 5 a.m., and I wanted to get some sleep on Saturday morning, and I thought, you know, I'm up now, and I'm all all kind of jacked up. The blood's flowing. I'll just have a beer or two just to, to calm me down and put me back to sleep. It happened to be when Wimbledon is on, and, and as you know, Wimbledon takes place in England, which is seven hours ahead of us here in Denver, so the tennis tournament was already on TV at that time in the morning. Now, I'm not a tennis fan at all. I watch no tennis on television, but it was it was on, and I, I was having my one or two beers, and I turned the TV on and, and kind of got into the tennis, and 
about eight beers later, I was still sitting there at nine o'clock in the morning uh, watching tennis and, and being pretty proud of myself for finding a way to entertain myself. Never did go back to bed. But, you know, I never drink in the morning except for those two examples and probably a half a dozen others that I could come up with if I really thought hard. And then I could easily justify away because they were one-offs or they were special occasions or they were holidays. But this is, this is what it's like to be a high-functioning alcoholic. It's a combination of denial and self-debate about your status, the status of your drinking. So the mental gymnastics, you know, I, I tell those stories kind of in jest. They're, they're, they're true, though. They're things that really happened. But the mental gymnastics is really painful. There's nothing funny about it in, in truth. I can remember getting in my car and driving to the mountains... I live in Denver, so within a half an hour or so, I'm in the foothills and then into the mountains, just driving aimlessly and and letting the debate rage in my head. It was a way to get away from work and family and the phone and just whatever else. And just, I thought, if I can just get away, I can solve this problem in my head. But the the problem with the mental gymnastics that we go through as high-functioning alcoholics is we're debating the wrong questions. We're doing things like comparing ourselves to end-stage, gutter-bum alcoholics. And just comparing ourselves, I think we will all admit, if we think about it and we answer ourselves honestly, that comparing ourselves to others in any way of life only ends badly. I mean, think about social media. The worst thing about social media is the, the vacation pictures and the pictures of the people who've just won awards that get posted and and we look at that and we want to be happy for our friends, but we can't help but do a little bit of comparison and think, gosh, their vacation was better than mine. And so it just makes us feel bad. So comparison is never, it's never healthy. We all have to live our own individual lives. We're motivated by different things. We have different likes and dislikes. We have different family members, different family backgrounds, and different people that we love that we interact with. So comparison can only lead to jealousy and bad things. And and when comparing ourselves and our alcoholic status, it actually has the opposite effects. It makes us feel too good about ourselves. So we sit there and say, oh, I haven't wrecked my whole family, so I must not be an alcoholic. I I don't have any DUIs. I'm fine. Well, that's just not how it works. We are overinflating our situation. We've just been lucky. And the things that have caught up with other people just haven't caught up with us yet. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And the reason I say that with such confidence is that alcoholism is a progressive disease. Wherever you are right now with your drinking, it can only get worse. Case after case, time after time has proven it. If, if you read my writing consistently or you listen to the podcast, you, you know that I'm a big Robin Williams fan. I've basically read or watched or listened to everything I can come up with on Robin Williams. And I'm fascinated. I think he's a hilarious comedian. But more than that, I'm fascinated with his story. Here's a guy who was doing drugs, was clearly an alcoholic, and then went through 20 years of sobriety. And then he decided he could try again. He decided he probably was cured and he could drink again. And there's a Letterman interview with Robin Williams where he says... After 20 years of sobriety, when I started drinking again, it was about day two or three, and I was drinking at a worse, more dangerous level than I had been 20 years ago. So, drinking dangerously, clearly alcoholic, 20 years of sobriety, 
drinking and by the third day you're worse off than you had been before. So that just speaks to, and there's a million stories like that, that just speaks to the confirmation that alcoholism is a progressive disease. Wherever you are now, it can only get worse. So in debating, self-debating and mental gymnastics and all of this stuff, I would say, oh, I haven't got any DUIs and I haven't lost my family, but I forgot to put that last word at the end of those sentences. I haven't gotten a DUI yet and I haven't lost my family yet because it's only downhill from where I was. And the reason I didn't say yet was because I didn't know. I didn't understand at the time when an active, high-functioning alcoholic, I didn't know what I know now about the disease and the progressive nature. So the debate raged on. I questioned and argued with myself about whether or not I was a, an alcoholic. What finally cleared things up for me, well, before I say that, one other thing about the debate and the fact that the debate rages on is it's exhausting and it is all consuming. Unless I was concentrating on something from work or I was otherwise heavily engaged in a process maybe a deep conversation with my wife, maybe I was playing soccer or coaching soccer, unless something was really occupying my attention, if I had any room for my mind to wander at all, it would wander to this debate about whether or not I was an alcoholic. It could be the day after I had just abusively drank and things had gone really bad and and so drinking was on my mind for that reason. It could be days and days since my last drink, but I was thinking about the next drink. And so then the debate would rage on, eh, I'm, I'm sure I can handle it. You know, I just got to exert a little more control, got to follow my rules. That's another thing that we should talk about when we talk about high-functioning alcoholics that are dealing with the mental gymnastics. A huge portion of the mental gymnastics is assigning rules to our drinking, making up uh, new restrictions that we think if we can only follow these restrictions, our drinking is fine and we can continue to drink for the rest of our lives. And if you've ever been there, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those who might be a little confused, I'm talking about things like, oh, here, here's, here's probably the most common one and, and the most profound one for me that I thought was going to solve all my problems. I'm going to stop drinking hard alcohol because I drink whatever beverage is in my hand at the same rate. And if I'm drinking whiskey on the rocks at the same rate that I'm drinking beer, I'm going to get drunk faster and do more stupid stuff when I'm drinking whiskey. So I'm not going to drink whiskey anymore. I'm not going to drink vodka anymore. I'm, I'm just going to drink beer. And that'll fix all my problems. Well, that's a joke. I just drank more beer and I drank IPAs. I drank heavier, stronger beer. So that, But that's a very, very common rule. You know, another common rule is I'm only going to drink on the weekends. For a long period of, of my battle and wrestling match with active alcoholism, I would own, I would take Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday off. I played soccer in a men's league on Thursdays, and so Thursday night after the soccer match, that was what I considered the start of the weekend. So I would drink Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday, and take Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday off. Most of the time, didn't always make it. Often the stress and pressure and depression was just too much, and on a Monday or Tuesday, I would give in and drink. But so... Other rules include I'm going to drink a glass of water between alcoholic beverages so I won't get as drunk. Um, I'm going to count the number of drinks I drink. I'm, I was big on that for a while. I would, if the beer at the time the beer I was drinking was a bottled IPA, and I would keep the bottle caps in my pocket so I could count, or I would only put 
a certain number of them in the refrigerator and leave the rest of them warm so I couldn't go past my allotted quantity for the day or the the weekend day. And, you know, what a joke. Those rules are just made to be broken. It's, again, it's another thing that the question is when, not if. When will I break the rules? And the amount of energy that we waste, the amount of energy that a high-functioning alcoholic has to exert to follow his or her, her own prescribed rules is it's just amazing to me looking back the amount of time and just stress I would put myself under to try to keep from going over the rules so the rules are made to be broken the mental gymnastics that are a part of this rule making is debilitating and exhausting and all consuming And what really set me free from those rules was was when I finally adopted the concept that there really are only two questions you need to ask yourself if you think you might have a problem with drinking. And those two questions are, the first one is, do you think about alcohol when you're not drinking? And that question can apply in two ways. It can be thoughts about alcohol when you've just come off a bingeful experience where you're full of regret and sorrow and you're doing a lot of apologizing and just self-loathing. It can be that kind of thinking about your drinking, but it can also be anticipation of the next drink. You could have big plans for the weekend coming and it's Wednesday and you just can't wait. You just can't wait to get that drink on on Friday night. So if your answer is yes to the question, do you think about drinking when you're not drinking, that's a big deal. That's a big deal because it should tell you how much of a place in your life alcohol maintains, how important it is on your priority list when you're thinking about it when you're not drinking. It's only things that are really important and are really, they have a hold on our lives that we think about when we're not doing them. The second question, it's it's a simple one too. Is alcohol causing problems in my life? And Let me clarify this one too. This can be huge problems like DUIs or or losing access to your children because you're such a bad parent because of the alcohol. Or it can be small things like I argue with my spouse too much or I'm spending too much money or I don't like the way I feel the morning after. So again, don't, don't get locked into the severity issue. Am I as bad as somebody else? The question is simple. Let's keep it that way. Is alcohol causing problems in my life? If you answer yes to that, and then you also answer yes to, I think about alcohol when I'm not drinking, I've got some news for you. Your situation with alcohol is far, far, far more likely to get much, much worse than it is to ever get better. Alcoholism is a self-diagnosis, so I hate to point a crooked finger and scream in your face, but basically, if you answer yes to those two questions, you are an alcoholic. And there's no turning back. You're, you have one option. Because of the progressive nature of the disease, you can't go from being uh, a, someone who has a problem with alcohol. Who, in my, The word I use is alcoholic. I use the standard old school word. If you are an alcoholic, you cannot become a moderate drinker. It is just impossible. If you don't believe me, ask Robin Williams. Ask the medical experts. Ask the millions of other people who have tried. I know that for a while I thought, I thought myself pretty smart. There was a lot of arrogance involved when I was an alcoholic. I was very proud of myself. And I thought, you know what? I'm smarter than all those people. I can figure this out. I can set the rules just right. I can exert enough 
willpower and determination and I can beat this thing. And boy, was I wrong. To this day with the, like I said, hundreds, really now probably thousands of alcoholics with whom I've had interaction. I've never met one that's smarter than alcohol. Never. It's like that old saying that father time is undefeated when we think about our athletic careers. Once you reach a certain age, you just can't do stuff anymore. Well, guess what? Alcohol is undefeated as well. If you've crossed that invisible line between social drinking and alcoholism, there is no going back. Absolutely no way. So that's that's a question I get asked a lot. How did I know I was an alcoholic? And I talk about the mental gymnastics. I talk about the rules that I put around my drinking. But then I talk about the freedom and liberation that happened when I realized that there's just those two questions. And if I can answer yes to both of them, yes, I think about alcohol when I'm not drinking, yes, alcohol is causing a problem in my life, then the alcohol had to go. That wasn't in and of itself the full breadth of my recovery from alcoholism. That didn't fix everything, just acknowledging that those questions were the foundational questions and that my answer was affirmative to both of them. But it was a huge step in the right direction. It really helped me get out of the cycle of mental gymnastics when I would start to compare myself or start to think about all the things I hadn't done, start to think about all the productivity that existed in my life, all the positivity that existed in my life, I could say, you know what? Stop it. Stop the debate. Stop justifying. Stop saying it was okay to drink that Saturday morning because sports was on TV and I just was trying to get back to sleep. So that justified it. Stop it. Stop it. If I can give one piece of advice to anyone who's in this cycle of mental gymnastics, in the cycle of denials, denial, in the cycle of trying to put rules around their alcoholism, or they're drinking, pardon me, my one piece of advice would be, you are wasting time. You are wasting your own precious time. You will lose. It's just a matter of time. Again, alcohol is undefeated, and don't be like me. Don't spend 10 years in active alcoholism. 10-year period went by from the first time I tried to quit drinking and recognized this is a problem in my life, and this is a problem that's not going to go away. 10 years from that time until I finally got permanently sober. Lots more damage to my relationships. Lots more physical damage to myself. A ton of more mental damage. All of it was wasted. If I had just acknowledged the answers to those two questions, if I had known those two questions and then acknowledged the answer to them, I could have saved myself so much pain, saved myself so much wasted time. So that's my advice to anyone who's battling the mental gymnastics. Now, the other question that I get asked a lot is, what what makes you an alcoholic? How does someone become an alcoholic? Is it just purely based on quantity of alcohol consumed? Well, I don't, I don't think it is. I think there are other factors. There are certainly people that have drank more than me and continue to drink more than me, and for, for whatever reason... Alcohol, at least on the outside, doesn't seem to be causing problems in their lives, although we never know what's going on in the background. And there are certainly lots and lots and lots of people who drank a lot less than me and certainly fell into the category of the alcoholism self-diagnosis. It was causing big problems in their lives, and it was on their mind all the time, and quitting was their only option. So it's not just about quantity. This is where we get to the introduction that I gave to this podcast episode, 
Doritos made me do it. Doritos turned me into an alcoholic. So I guess I've got some explaining to do because that that would be a confusing statement. But here's how it worked. I've learned so much about brain chemistry, the neurotransmitters in our head, specifically the ones that are related to pleasure, dopamine, serotonin. These are neurotransmitters that our brain fires off when something pleasurable happens in our life. Well, when we get the burst of pleasure from drinking alcohol, that's one of the main triggers to get our brain to fire off the dopamine, the neurotransmitters that make us feel that pleasure. Well, guess what? Simple carbs and sugars work in the exact same way in our brain. So if we get a surge of sugar or we eat some crappy carbs and we eat in large quantities, our brain will flood itself with dopamine, that good feeling drug. So I ate a ton of Doritos as a kid. I would come home from school and I'd eat, I don't know, like a half a bag of Doritos a day sitting in front of the TV after school to relax. That was my after school snack. Now, I am a victim of the processed food generation. We know a lot now here in the year 2020 that we didn't know back in 1985. We thought the processed food revolution was a miracle. All of these easy to eat, easy, you know, no preparation needed foods that had you know, kind of come into our, our being, come into our environment in, in the previous 10 or 15 or 20 years. They were kind of miraculous. But we didn't, we didn't associate any dangers with the processed food, the convenience foods that we now know exist, the high sugars, the high chemicals, the simple carbs. So I would pound down like a half a bag of Doritos, right? And my brain got used to, okay, we know what to do with this. Uh, that sugar, that simple carb... That causes this injection of dopamine, got this pattern figured out, got it memorized. We'll never forget this pattern. Good to go. So then later in life, when I started introducing alcohol into my system, guess what? You know where I'm going to go with this. Alcohol follows the exact same neuro highway that sugars and simple carbs do. So our brain said, alcohol, okay, what do we do with this? Oh, I know what to do with this. We treat this exactly the same way we do these simple carbs or these sugars. We flood this guy's brain with dopamine. He's going to feel great. So I got this really amazingly euphoric feeling from drinking alcohol. And I the feeling was so euphoric that I drank a lot. I drank in large quantities and I drank often. And our brain, in addition to, to making this relationship between what do I do with these substances as it relates to releasing these chemicals... Our brain is also constantly trying to be in a state of homeostasis, a state of equilibrium. So our brain's not cool with just firing off dopamine all the time. That's too much. That's too much pleasure. We're not in balance. So what the brain figures out is, since I've already associated dopamine with alcohol, I'm going to start to reserve the dopamine for only when this guy drinks alcohol. So other things that should cause pleasure, seeing a beautiful sunset, This guy's kid's doing something great in school, having a fun date night with his wife, whatever. None of that gets any of the dopamine release unless alcohol is involved. So basically, our brain associates alcohol with survival because we need that dopamine to survive. And the brain decides the only thing I'm going to give this guy dopamine for is when he's drinking. So this guy's going to have to drink to survive. How just mind-bogglingly awful is that? 
alcohol becomes a survival tool. And that's that's how alcoholism starts. That's how it happens for us. We we begin to think of drinking as a necessity. We don't do that on a conscious level. We just constantly want to drink, and that's because the subconscious, you know that thing that makes us breathe in and out over and over without ever thinking about it? The part of our brain that makes us blink our eye and, you know, makes our heart beat? That thing is powerful. And when that thing starts to form a relationship, the subconscious forms a relationship between alcohol and survival, there's not a lot we can do about it. We are going to seek alcohol even when we are trying not to. So that is how Doritos made me an alcoholic. Certainly there are other factors. My surroundings were a big impact. My dad drank every day of my life. He would come home from work and have a couple gin and tonics, beer on the weekends. So my role model, the person I most emulated, was a drinker. But it wasn't just him. The the other kids in high school were experimenting with alcohol. The kids in college that I was friends with, everyone drank and drank heavily, binge drinking, drinking hard on the weekends, but drinking throughout the week as well. It was just everywhere. It was it was associated in every way imaginable with relationships, both friendships with, with the guys, but also with girls. I mean, when I was in college, the weekend was about what party are we going to or what when once I was 21, what bar are we going to where we can drink and people of the opposite sex will be there. It was there, you know, we all, we credit alcohol like it's some blessing that alcohol lowers our inhibitions and takes away our social stress. That's not actually a good thing. Those inhibitions are there for a reason. It's stressful to be in a crowded room and talking to a lot of different people for a reason. Those stresses are there to protect us. And when we wash them away with alcohol, it makes us do things that we later regret. It makes us get into sexual encounters that we, looking back, we realize there was no connection there. That was cheap and dirty and and unfulfilling. And it it makes us bypass a lot of the steps that are involved in developing relationships. And so we often end up in serious relationships, serious romantic relationships with people we actually don't like very much. And if those filters had been there, if the roadblocks to closeness had been there and we had had to work through them and get to know people in a natural way, we probably would have figured out that we can't stand each other before we got in way too deep. So my surroundings, you know, even after college, it continued on that path, perhaps to a lesser degree, but I was a young professional and when five or six o'clock rolled around on on Friday evening, me and my coworkers went to the bar for happy hour and often most of us just kept going and we'd get together again on Saturday or maybe it was a different group of friends on Saturday. Maybe it was neighbors that lived in the same neighborhood with us. But the drinking was ever present. It was an important part of my existence. And so when you factor all, all different things in, the amount I was consuming with the frequency I was consuming it and then the way my, my brain had already been hijacked and the neurotransmitters had already been taught how to process alcohol... My alcoholism was my destiny. It was a foregone conclusion. But there's more to that story of what makes a person an alcoholic. A lot of people use alcohol to not to manage trauma, but to make trauma go away. So if they've had a sexual abuse experience or they've been in an accident, I mean, I don't have to describe what trauma is. You know what trauma is. If they've had a traumatic experience, 
and they're having trouble processing it and the, the memories keep gnawing at them and won't go away. A lot of people drink just to make the memories simmer down. It's very, very common. That was not my case, though. I didn't have trauma. I had a blessed childhood, and certainly I had my share of challenges, but but nothing that I would say rose to the level of being called trauma, nothing terrible that haunted me. But I did have stuff going on in my brain that was not healthy. I, I have what I have come to call chaotic mind syndrome, and it's actually one of the reasons that I study so much about Robin Williams, because... He had what I call chaotic mind syndrome too. He just had it much, much worse than I, I did. My mind was constantly, especially once I started drinking, once alcohol entered my life, my mind was constantly thinking. I couldn't ever just sit and relax. Um, ideas about work or my relationships or what I wanted to do this coming weekend or where I wanted to go on vacation or things that had gone wrong in my life that I wanted to rectify or something going on in politics. It didn't even have to necessarily directly involve me. Just anything that was a thought process that would enter my mind would then enter the craziness that was going on in there with these ideas bouncing all around. And anyone who's seen Robin Williams' stand-up, I think he's the the best personification of what I'm talking about. Sometimes, frankly, when I've listened to his stuff, he's not actually saying anything funny. He just bounces from topic to topic so rapidly and so incoherently that it's hilarious. You just don't even understand what he's talking about. We're laughing at the craziness of it all. Well, that's what goes on in the mind of a lot of us. And I say a lot of us because as I've written and talked about this, I've realized I'm not alone. It's not just me and Robin Williams. There are a lot of people that can never get their brain to stop bouncing ideas around in a really chaotic, relentless, painful way. But guess what? Guess what will bring temporary relief to the chaos? That's right, alcohol. So I learned again on a subconscious level, because I never I never really sat there and thought to myself, oh, I got so many thoughts racing in my head. I wish they'd go away. It was just there. It was taxing. It was exhausting. It was painful at times. And then I would drink and it would go away. And so my subconscious mind would make this connection. Gosh, this guy is kind of a lunatic half the time. He uh, can't simmer down and settle on one thing to think about. Uh, Things like meditation or clearing my mind or just being at peace for a few minutes, those were not in my vocabulary. Like That was never, ever, ever happening. So with this chaos, the alcohol would bring some temporary relief. And my brain learned that and kind of memorized it and said, oh, we're going to use this to our advantage. So in addition to the the Doritos tie and the fact that my surroundings, my society, my culture, my family, everything that ever existed in my life pointed toward drinking as the panacea for all, I also had this chaotic mind syndrome thing going on. And the longer my drinking went, the longer the chaotic mind syndrome went, and the more just years I spent on earth where we we experience both success, but we also experience failure. And I, it can be within my relationship. It could be job-related. I had a lot of early success career-wise, but then you know things settled down and I had goods and bads. I'm not saying my career was ever terrible, but I had obstacles to overcome and lots of setbacks. And those would 
would bounce around the old chaotic mind like failure. So stress, setbacks, failures would bounce around in there and just be relentlessly dogging me. And eventually that turned into a kind of a darkness, a kind of depression that I had to deal with. And, you know, a feeling that I wasn't good enough and that I couldn't accomplish the things that I had set set out to accomplish. And sometimes it was just that misfortune had plagued me and that I my timing was bad and I had gotten involved in in an industry that was never going to be successful again and I just made bad decisions and here I was stuck. And in addition to all of that, I was arguing with my wife more and more because guess what happens when you drink heavily? You're not very rational and you say stupid things and your partner doesn't appreciate that. So the arguments became... In increasing in frequency and increasing in severity. That's more more little ping pong balls to bounce around in my chaotic mind and, and cause me all kinds of of stress. And, and again, the word I would use is darkness. I, it started to get really dark. Well, guess what else alcohol is good for? Alcohol can temporarily bring relief from the darkness. It can make the darkness go away. Now, the thing I didn't understand at the time, while I was drinking away my stress and drinking to make the depression go away and drinking to slow down my chaotic mind, and in addition, drinking for fun, drinking for social reasons, drinking because my brain thought of alcohol as a survival tool, all these things are making me drink. And what I didn't realize is not only is alcohol the relief that I needed, the temporary relief I needed from a lot of the things that were going on inside, but it was also causing them. That's the the diabolical, insidious part about alcoholism. Alcohol relieves the exact same things that it causes to come raging back later. And if if you're still in that, that mental gymnastics mode, if you're still debating your alcoholic status, think about what I just said for a minute. When you're stressed and you're sad and things aren't going well and you're arguing with your spouse and you have a couple of drinks and it soothes that feeling, that's the piece that you cannot possibly imagine letting go of. That's the self-medicating that has become necessary in your life. Whether you think about it on a conscious level, which I'm asking you to do now, think about it now, or, or whether you ignore it, but now that I'm shining a light on it, you have to acknowledge the fact that the alcohol makes all that stuff, all that bad stuff go away. But, but if you think about it hard enough, you'll realize that if, if you drank heavily on the weekend and then Monday morning came and you just didn't want to get out of bed, you just couldn't imagine facing another work week, alcohol is what's causing that too. If you hadn't drank heavily during that weekend, you might still have a little bit of Monday blues. I mean, I think some level of that is natural. Certainly the weekend is by design more enjoyable and more highly anticipated than the work week. But you could you could get out of bed and function and get through it. And by noon on Monday or at least by Tuesday morning, you're into it and you're fine and everything's hunky-dory. But not, not when we drink heavily, not when we drink to self-medicate. The, the same thing that the alcohol brings temporary relief for is the same thing that the alcohol is causing. And it's a big, big deal. I know people that have battled depression or anxiety for their entire adult lives. But guess what else they've done for their entire adult lives? They've consumed alcohol. 
regularly, daily maybe, heavily often. And they don't understand that the anxiety they feel, the depression they feel, the stress in some cases, the need to constantly be in control, these are just side effects of alcohol. Consistent, regular alcohol consumption. It's what it does to us. And they think, oh, you know, I, I use alcohol to help battle this depression that I've had my whole life. The depression doesn't have anything to do with alcohol. I've had it my whole adult life. But what they can't, you know, put two and two together on is they've also been drinking their whole life. And that is actually an alcohol-induced depression in many cases. Certainly not in all cases. I'm not saying that if you're a non-drinker, you're not allowed to be depressed. There is absolutely 1,000% clinical depression that has nothing at all to do with alcoholism. But in many, many cases, those two are inextricably linked and we're just not smart enough to realize it. I shouldn't have said not smart enough. That was rude. We, we haven't been educated so that we can realize it because that's a huge part of this problem. Because of the stigma associated with alcoholism, we don't talk about it. Because we don't talk about it, we don't understand it. And because we don't understand it, we reject the notion that it's got a hold of our lives. It's an awful cycle to be locked into. And that brings me to the last topic that I wanted to talk about today. And that is the fact that I claim and brag about even my alcoholic label. I the Calling myself or having someone else call me an alcoholic is not an embarrassment to me. It sure was for a long time. The thought that I could be an alcoholic was terrorizing. And then once I admitted it internally, saying those words out loud was just not, those words were not coming to my lips under any circumstances. And it's all about the stigma. The stigma associated with alcoholism keeps us from owning the label. Now, there are many people in the recovery community that talk about the sober curious movement and they reject the label of alcoholic and they do so because there is so much stigma, so much negative connected to the label that they feel like, let's just throw the label away, let's put it aside, let's not even address it, and let's talk with people about whether their drinking is or is not causing problems in their lives. Forget about the label. You can quit drinking even if you don't call yourself an alcoholic and have massive benefits to your life. There are lots of people in the recovery community that look at it that way. I respect that, but at the same time, I I I don't personally view that as the healthiest way to go when it comes to dealing with this topic. I think it's a much healthier thing, a much healthier um, way to look at it, to own the label and to remove the stigma. So rather than denying that we're an alcoholic, but but recognizing "Eh, alcohol might not be serving me, I'm going to quit, but I'm never going to call myself an alcoholic because we're afraid of that stigma. If we own it, we make the stigma go away. I mean, think about that for a second. If I If I introduce myself to a group of people as an alcoholic, what are they going to do? Make fun of me because I can't drink and tease me about being an alcoholic? Are they going to use that word to hurt me? How can that word possibly hurt me when it's the word I use to introduce myself? So we, we can remove the stigma ourselves by living happy, healthy, productive, enlightened lives and saying, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, so what? I'm better off than I was back when I thought alcohol wasn't a poison because guess what? In any quantity, even if you're a two glass of wine a week person, stuff's not serving you. It's hurting you. Alcohol is a poison in any quantity and it has negative ramifications no matter how much you drink. The ramifications can be really minor 
You can live your whole life with them and never acknowledge them. It's entirely possible. There's millions and millions of people that do that. But in any quantity, alcohol is a poison. And so calling myself allergic to that poison or calling myself addicted to that poison, that carries no shame for me. And it's my goal and my wish and my dream and my prayer that someday we'll get to the point where someone who contracts the disease of alcoholism calls themselves an alcoholic just as freely as someone who contracts cancer tells people around them in their lives that they have cancer, that there's no shame involved, that it's just a medical condition. We treat it and move on. So in my humble opinion, I think that's a far healthier approach than to ignore the label or push the label aside or reject the label. I understand the pain that it's caused. I understand that the word alcoholism has literally cost millions of lives because millions of people who needed treatment, who could have sought treatment, who could have sought help, refused to do so because they refused to associate themselves with the gutter bum that's peeing himself and sleeping in the street every night. Well, we need to change the perception, not change the word. The, the word is what it is. It describes, I mean, I think now technically in the medical community, they call it alcohol use disorder instead of alcoholism, but it's alcoholism. It's, it's an addiction to alcohol. And rather than ignore the word and pretend it doesn't exist, let's embrace the word and change the perception that surrounds it. I'll end today on a, with a quick story about that in real life. I, I attended a, a writing group just, just a couple of weeks ago, and it, the, the way this group worked, the instructor gives us a writing prompt at the beginning, and then we write for about 45 minutes or so. Uh, no editing, no polishing, no finding the perfect word. It's just kind of a mind dump process of writing. And then we go around the group and everyone reads the story that they wrote to that specific prompt. And then after the reading is done, each reader receives feedback from the other members of the group. It's a really positive experience. It's A lot of people pour some really deep emotional things out on the table and then they, they are positively acknowledged by their co-writers who thank them for their story and, and talk about what a great job they did sharing it. It's a really cool thing. But the reason I, I bring it up and explain it is, in order for me to acknowledge the power of one of the writer's stories that they provided, I had to, at the beginning of my comment in giving feedback to this person, I had to say, I'm an alcoholic, and let me tell you what your story meant to me. And the reason I had to say I was an alcoholic, I guess I didn't have to, but that was automatically an indication to everyone in the group that I knew my stuff around this particular topic. The, the person's story was related to addiction, and by saying those three words, I'm an alcoholic, I said to that person, I'm an expert in the field. And so my feedback carried more weight with this person than anyone else in the group as we went around and, and told this person, shared with this person what we thought. It, so not only is owning the label, is it reducing the stigma that exists and is it empowering to ourselves, it's almost like having a, a, an important credential on a business card in some settings by just loud and proud saying, I'm an alcoholic before I start to say the rest of what I say, what I'm going to say, I've gained credibility. And, you know, in the fields of addiction, but also mental health, um, suicide prevention, in all of these fields that are where the lines that separate them are really blurry, and there's a lot of 
similarities. I'm an expert in that field now by claiming my alcoholic label. Now, if I was a sober, curious person who knew wine was causing me problems, but I wasn't willing to call myself an alcoholic and I just quit drinking quietly, didn't tell anyone, made up excuses when I went went out with friends, or maybe I did say, you know, I'm just not drinking anymore, I feel better and I don't want to talk about it. If I was one of those people, I would have had no credibility at that table with these other writers. I would have helped that person in no profound way by saying I understood their story and giving them the feedback that I provided. So I think we just look at the word alcoholic wrong. We look at it as a dreadful thing when really, I'm not, I'm not saying it's something we should brag about, but if we've earned a credential, if we've earned a credential because we went to school for a bunch of years and paid a bunch of money, you know we're going to brag about that credential. Well, I've earned the label alcoholic for the pain and agony and misery I've been through and for the recovery process and the enlightenment that I've been through. And you're damn right I'm going to call myself an alcoholic and I'm going to do it in a way that establishes me as an expert and allows me to to speak about the experiences I've had. There's no more hiding. There's no more shadow. There's no more shame. I'm an alcoholic and I'm proud of it. And if I can help other people by claiming it that way, that well, that's what I'm going to do. So there you go. Now you know how I came to grips with the fact that I was an alcoholic, what made me an alcoholic, and you also know the power of claiming the label. And I'm going to bet that Anyone who listens to this podcast episode is never going to look at a bag of Doritos the same way again. Uh, Those things are dangerous. Not just because they can cause alcoholism, but uh, they're just not good for you anyway. But, But yeah, Doritos made me an alcoholic, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. My name is Matt Salis, and I appreciate you listening to the Untoxicated Podcast. Until next time, thanks very much.